1: hello everyone welcome to another episode of new books network and today i'm honored to be talking to professor christopher solenza Professor Christopher Solenza is an American scholar of Renaissance history, and uh, he's also the Dean of Arts at the College of uh, Arts and Sciences at John Hopkins University, where he teaches history and classics. And today, he's here to talk to us about a wonderful book he published with Cambridge University Press called The Italian Renaissance and the Origins of Modern Humanities and Intellectual History, 1400 to 1800. Christopher, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Christopher, you've had a fascinating, uh, let's say, a background. Uh, you've you got two PhDs, one in history, one in classics. Can you talk a little about yourself, tell us about your background and also how this book came about and why you decided to write this book about modern humanities, which origins of modern humanities, which I think is a very timely topic with all the discussions about uh, do we need humanities these days or not?
0: Yeah, no, thank you. happy to give a little background. So I I was trained as a historian, as a classicist. As you mentioned, I wound up doing two PhDs, one in the U.S. and one in Germany, um, and spent a lot of time in Europe. And in my early career, I spent a lot of time in the manuscript libraries of Europe. I specialized, and still do to an extent, in the 15th century in Italy, and especially in the Latin texts from that period, many of which were unedited and untranslated. As time went by, I began to get more interested in the history of the field itself. So in 2004, I wrote a book called The Lost Italian Renaissance, in which I tried to talk about, to investigate the institutional history. In other words, how did did Latin, you know, how was Renaissance Latin appreciated or not appreciated in, say, 19th century institutions and what legacies that had for us today? And as time went by, I began to do a little bit more of that kind of work. Um, I became interested in writing for slightly more general audiences. So I wrote a biography of Machiavelli and a short biography of Petrarch. Um, And then a couple of years ago, um, I wrote a book called The Intellectual World of the Italian Renaissance, which was in a sense just, you could say, my take on the culture of Italian Renaissance humanism from the era of Petrarch to the 16th century. And so as to this book, um, the one we're talking about today I, I wrote it in a sense with an eye deliberately toward the contemporary world in which we are seated, but also with an, with a, an eye toward validating the study of the past. Um, one, one problem that has struck me or one issue that I think is very central now, and I'm sure this is, is true for you and many of your listeners and, 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 and viewers on the YouTube channel, is I think that we're surrounded by um, waves and waves of texts that are coming at us in formats that are really unique in human history, right? On screens, on tablets, on phones, and so on. And and I began to think about this. And, And part of it is related to the fact that I am an administrator at a university. So I think also about our students and about what kinds of things we should be teaching and about how our faculty work and so on. And amidst all of these wildly undulating waves of information that are coming at us, how do we we make sense of these texts? And at one point, I remember I taught a seminar, and one of the books that we read was an edited collection by Sheldon Pollock called World Philology. It's a brilliant set of um, studies on philology of all different types of literature, not just Western, but also Chinese um, in the Arabic tradition and so on. And one of the things he talks about in his introduction there is he he tries to come up with a new definition of philology. And he just says, let's let's talk about it as making sense of texts. And that really resonated with me, and it stuck with me. And so when I started thinking about this book and this project, um, it originally began as something I thought would be very small, that it would just be 10 or so instances of Italian Renaissance thinkers doing philological work. Well, it morphed into something much, much bigger, Um, so much so that I wound up having to cut about 70,000 words out of it to turn it into the book that, that you have now. And, and as I was doing that, I, I was I was thinking very deeply about this idea of how are we reading now? How are we making sense of the world now? How are we, again, interpreting all of these texts that are coming at us, number one? And thus, number two, what would it mean to go back in time um, to think about how Renaissance thinkers were doing this sort of work? And then what sorts of echoes did these Renaissance thinkers work? Did their work have in the succeeding centuries up to the 18th century? So in that sense, that's how the book was.
1: It came to be. It was sort of a long and, and uh, winding story. I, I just wish there was a way for us to see those 70,000 words that you had to cut out, right? This is a fascinating book, and I, I'll emphasize that at the beginning. There are lots of names that I did not know myself, and uh, lots of great stories there about uh, philology and how they contributed to modern humanities. Let, let's talk about philology a bit. You did talk about it. It's... Uh, generally speaking some people might just very reductively think of it as a way of editing text but can you tell us generally what is philology and you have this example of homer in the introduction to your book and how how was it done in in renaissance in generally speaking because we'll delve into more details as we go ahead how did it differ from now let's say
0: yeah well I, i appreciate that question because i think philology not unlike the word philosophy Both of those words' meanings have varied greatly over time, on the one hand. But on the other hand, because they inhabit corners of current academic disciplines, oftentimes the practitioners of those disciplines tend to think that the version of, whether it's philosophy or philology, that they're practicing now um, somehow represents past versions of what this was. So part of the intention I had in this in this book was to draw attention to the fact that these things could mean very different things over time. Um, philology was itself was, as a word was used in many different ways. But I would say that even the practices behind philology changed. So today, I think if you were to ask a classical philologist, well, what is philology? For the most part, I think what they would say is. You know, it's an attempt using uh, textual criticism to try to get back to what we believe was the original intention of an author for whom we have no autographs, right? But we have to do this through studying the relationship between texts, between manuscripts, um, by dividing them into families, by eliminating manuscripts that descend or were copied from parts of those families and so on. In other words, there's something about it that I think is very, um, there's a set of techniques that philology represents. Now, in the Renaissance, in the 15th century, that period has often been tagged as a predecessor of what modern philologists do, and in many ways, rightly so. So some of the folks that you'll meet in this book, Lorenzo Valla, for example, Angelo Puliziano, and others, they really do adumbrate in some ways some of the practices that modern philologists do. Um, Valla, for example, is someone who um, is often relentless about trying to find the Ancient historical meaning, let's say, of a word, and point out that you know words that we use today in Latin might not have been used in the same way in antiquity. Puliziano, for example, someone who was even concerned sometimes with how books were put together, um, and was able to figure out that sometimes texts had been misordered because manuscripts had actually been bound together in a faulty way. So, for that and for a whole host of other reasons, there's a real reason why these folks are seen as predecessors. But I often think in that story of finding predecessors to to what modern philologists do, there is sometimes a tendency to ignore the other stuff that these Renaissance thinkers were doing with their work on texts. And that, to me, became ever more meaningful and more important, especially if we're looking at the humanities today, because these thinkers, and again, I would tag Val and Poliziano as two important ones, they also brought a lot of emotion to their work. Um, they they had, a, I think, a grounded belief that work in the humanities, deep concentrated textual work in the humanities mattered, not just um, for scientific results, the way we might narrowly use that word today, but also for improving the quality of human life. And they expressed that in different ways and over different times. And so, so I think that it, it was worth going back to them, or it is worth going back to these thinkers in the past and just trying to figure out how might they have been interpreting these then. And, and then accordingly, how can we use those messages today as we think about the humanities, which, again, in a worldwide sense, you could argue, um, you know, if not if, if not in crisis or at least in a place where we have to think hard about why we should keep doing that.
1: And, and, and just to emphasize the significance of philology, even the idea of authorship was different in Renaissance. A lot of texts they also analyzed were came to them from, from medieval times and they were written by scribes. And then maybe there were two or three scribes They were written in different times. So the idea of authorship was also quite different from what we have in mind today, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that too is, is, is one, of, one of the themes that underlies the book is what I try to do is connect what you might call the material culture of reading and writing with um, the intellectual agendas of the thinkers under question. And what I mean by that is, just as today, um, if you're writing a blog, say, the technology that you have available in some senses is going to shape what you write and how you think about what you write. So too, I would say, especially in the era before printing with movable type and even into the the beginnings of the era of printing with movable type, you know, it, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, that somebody, for example, would have would have believed, let's say, especially before printing of Google type, that something that he or she wrote could be exactly preserved and exactly the way they wanted it in thousands upon thousands of exactly identical copies, right? Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that, especially in the 15th century, when it comes to authorship, some of the most interesting things that were written, were written in responses to um, requests, to letters, and so on, so that there's a conversational element to the authorship. Um, And and I think for me, that's very important too. I think sometimes we have a 19th century uh, vision of authorship, where there's a heroic romantic individual who has one author, one text, one set of ideas. For me, it was always, it has been more interesting over the years to look at that more conversational sense of authorship, especially in the 15th century and even to an extent in the pre-modern period, um, and see where that leads us. And I, I think it's become ever more relevant today precisely because of the way our media are changing. Um, You know, a blog, for example, is something that is going to change almost every, every couple of days, right, that you'll add something to it, someone might correct it, somebody might add a comment to it. And the work just keeps changing a little bit, even as it has some similar contours and similar authors to it. Nonetheless, it's something that's always changing, and it's not precisely fixed in one way. So that, to me, became very interesting to think about as well.
1: Um, a few minutes ago, you mentioned Lorenzo Valla, and I'm sure for a lot of our audience, uh, he might yeah. be an unknown figure. So who was Lorenzo Valla, and how does his work reflect on philology as a scientific discipline?
0: Yeah, Valla is an endlessly fascinating figure. He he was born in 1406 and died in 1457, um, and he spent um, – a, a lot of his time. I mean, he spent all of his time. Well, he spent he spent a fair amount of his time uh, in Naples at the court of the uh, the, the, the Neapolitan uh, king, the king who had the title king of Aragon, and then he spent a big chunk of the rest of his life at the papal court as as someone who was brought there um, during the fourteen forty seven to fourteen fifty five. Um, papal reign of Nicholas V as a philological specialist, as someone who would translate Greek work into Latin and who would also do other work for the Pope. Um, Over the course of his life, he wrote a number of things that, um, in retrospect, seem to be something like critiques of contemporary Christianity. Um, And what's paradoxical and interesting about him in the first instance is despite that, he was still elevated into one of the very highest roles that you could have as a layperson in the papal court. So what that shows me about Ball is he was embedded in a world where there were lots of arguments occurring all the time. That's the first thing to say about him. The second thing to say about him is that He was just an argumentative person, you know, you know, as brilliant as he is, I'm not so sure he's the kind of person you would have wanted to go have dinner with, you know, because he was always arguing. He was always very rebarbative. But in a lot of that argumentative nature, in the responses uh, to people criticizing him and to the critiques he made of others, he came up with some of these brilliant texts and critiques and so on. And so, you know, if he's known today, he's probably known most of all, if he appears in textbooks, he usually appears for something called the Donation of Constantine Treatise. And I spend a little time in the book talking about this. And there too, this is one of these instances that he's kind of, um, I'm even going to go ahead and use the word pigeonholed as a predecessor of modern habits of thought. And in some respects he is. So the Donation of Constantine, what is it? Well, um, it's kind of two things, as this one brilliant scholar whom I cite in the book uh, uh, disentangled, a psycho named uh, Johannes Fried. On the one hand, the Donation of Constantine was a notional gift of the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century, the first Christian Roman emperor, um, a notional gift of that emperor to the then-Pope Sylvester, of all of the territories of the Western empire. That's the gift part of it. The second thing the donation of Constantine signifies is a document, there's a document. And as we now know, definitively, that document was not authored as it was supposed to have been during the era of Constantine, but authored much later in the eighth century. So there's always been this um, sense that, you know, this document was, a, there's, you know, there's, there's now in the sense that the document was a forgery and Vala is often tagged as the one who, quote, discovered, unquote, the fact that it was a forgery. So I examine this notion in the book to an extent and, and, and why he's tagged as this uh, discoverer and so on and how that works. Now, on the one hand, he does do certain things in his treatise on the donation that seem like modern critiques. For example, he shows that this document that was supposed to have been authored in the fourth century contains words that wouldn't have been used in the fourth century that were only used later. So in that sense, that seems like a very modern thing. But one thing I point out in the book is that before all of that work in his treatise about the dedication of Constantine, what Vala does most of all is he appeals to common sense, to reason, and to emotion. For example, he says um, things in the document. He, he focuses. He he pretends at one point to be. Constantine's sons. He structures it as a narration, and he has the sons say, oh, father, how could you disenfranchise us of all of this land? How could you do this? Don't you know that if you did this, we won't follow Christianity the way you do?" Now, of course, this is a fictional impersonation that Paul is using as a tool, but he does other things like that. And my point is only that before he does what we might today consider the technical philological stuff, before he does that, he does first the common sense um, persuasive, um, emotional argumentation. And to me, I feel that's important because, if, again, if he's known even in a limited way today in textbooks, he's known really only for that latter part, the technical part. Whereas I think to him and his, his era, it was that more comprehensive, more emotional, um, uh, you know, more comprehensive style of argumentation that was meaningful. So that's one thing that's focused on. He also did work on uh, the Latin New Testament, comparing the Latin to the original Greek and sometimes finding, you know, different different ways to translate it, different ways to think about it. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways, he, he, he's interesting also, I would just close with this on Bala, Because the one work of his that really had popularity in his own era, that, which is to say in the Renaissance and the early modern era, was a work for which he's barely known at all today by general readers, which is a work called The Elegances of the Latin Language, which effectively was a textbook as to how do you write Latin well? You know, how do you write Latin to, to make it sound like classical Latin and so on? And it's really this gigantic series of lists of just praises called from his voluminous reading. And I think it's interesting that the work that today seems more revolutionary or that today that seems more like an anticipation of the Protestant Reformation or that today seems more like anticipations of Modern philology was, in fact, in his day, not all that well appreciated. Whereas the work that was well appreciated, you know, his textbook on the Latin language has sort of, you know, fallen out of out of consciousness. One more fact, maybe, sorry, I know I said a clip but one more thing we can say about Paul is in his own era, if we zero back in on that donation of Constantine treatise, even though what seems like a very strong set of proofs and arguments that the donation document was a forgery even though he did that, in his own era, the debate continued. So he didn't really solve the question for his era. And I find that fascinating, too, that something that to us seems like a definitive case-close proof, right? There's words in the document that weren't there when it was made, you know, all of these different things. In his era, it still took another century and a half for, for it really to become mainstream, accepted in the mainstream that this work was a forgery. And I find that fascinating, too, right, that this was somebody who somewhat, somehow seemed so modern, but nonetheless you know is um and as we all are embedded in this time and place
1: uh you actually covered the other questions that i had about them which was fascinating um yeah. and i want to ask about the role of emotions in the studying humanities but i'll leave it towards the end when we have talked about these important figures uh, yeah. when we'll try to discuss more about modern humanities and the and what yeah. we can learn from the book or from the practices of philology today. And there's another figure you talk about in the book, Angelo Decembrio, if I'm pronouncing the last name correctly. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly.
0: Yeah, Decembrio. And, Angelo Decembrio. Yeah,
1: Decembrio. Yeah. And he had this book on literary polish. So can you talk about him? What was his um, uh, yeah. contribution to, to philology? And what was the significance of this book on literary polish?
0: Yeah, he's a very interesting figure in the sense that one of the reasons I love thinking about him is that by any measure, he's probably what you would think of as a a kind of second tier humanist. And I don't even mean that as a value judgment. It just means we don't have that much of him. He probably wasn't as notorious in his day as Vala was or as famous in his day as Poliziano was. So in some senses, he gives us more of an everyday sense of what Renaissance humanism is like. In other words, if we say that you know, he's someone who, like a lot of other Renaissance humanists, wrote in Latin, wrote in a deliberately classicizing Latin, valued the ancient world as a series of exemplars, believed it was important to use the ancient world as a model for modern life, and so on. The Cangru is someone we can see as almost, I would say, a you know, an everyday type of humanist. So we learn a lot from that. So this work on literary polish that you mentioned is, is is very interesting. It was only very recently that it was edited critically. It's one of these many, you know, I, I told you I wrote this book called The Lost Italian Renaissance. And the basic thrust of that book was there was this whole long 15th century of more or less practically, if not lost, very little known works. DeCembers was certainly one of them. It was only relatively recently edited by a German scholar named uh, Norbert Witten. And, um, in it, what DeCentro does is he, he writes a dialogue, which a lot of Renaissance thinkers prized as a form in Latin. Um, and it's, it's actually a very long work, but the parts that are most interesting are the parts where he talks about how to form a library. Um, the word polish, literary polish, what he means by that, it's almost in that sense a foreshadowing of, say, a later 16th century thinker like Castiglione, right, who talked about manners and how you should behave in society and so on. So, polished for the chamber goes, What does it mean to be a polished person, a person of literary taste, and so on? Yeah. So, in the dialogue, what he does is he uses um, as a, he has a bunch of interlocutors, all of whom are real historical personages from his era. One of them is Leonello Deste, who's the Marquis of Ferrara, who ruled in the decade of the 1440s. And what the chamberier does is he has them talk about well, how should you form a library? And they talk about things like what books should be in it, what books shouldn't be in it, um, how, do you, how do you discover which kinds of books are forgeries, and thus what you should not include in your library. Um, they talk about things like you know, what kind of herbs you should have around so that the library smells nice and it's conducive to study, what sort of pictures should you have on the wall. So again, it's conducive to study, so it's the sort of holistic view. And I guess two interesting things stand out about that text and the portion on libraries for me. The one is, um, I do think that the Latinate tendencies of 15th century Italian humanism, fascinating as they always have been to me, also evinced some blind spots on the parts of humanists. One of these was appreciation of vernaculars, so, so if you look at the contents of libraries from that era, there's very little, if you actually look at inventories of libraries, for example, real libraries, not just fictive ones like in *The there's very little um, collection of vernacular texts, even classics, you know, like Dante's Divine Comedy, right? Boccaccio's Decameron and so on. At one point in *The on literary polish, one of the interlocutors mentions, well, in this library, Prince Leonello, how come you haven't mentioned any vernacular works? And the prince very dismissively and with a casual sexism that would have surprised nobody says, oh, vernacular works. Well, those are things we read with our wives and children on winter nights, as if to say these aren't serious. Right. Only the Latin works are serious. Only the classical works are serious. The second thing I would say that's really interesting about the library work is is how he talks about forgeries and and what it reveals about Decembra and what it reveals about how people might have talked about these things over time because he's got a whole chapter on forgeries and you know, a whole kind of chapter of this dialogue and um one of the things he talks about um is um this work uh that was attributed in the 15th century or attributed in the middle ages um, and to an extent through the 15th century to cicero but is now known or thought to be not of Cicero. The work is called The Rhetoric to Herennius. De Cembrio in the dialogue talks about that work and he talks about another work that we do believe is authentically Cicero the work on invention de invention. And what's interesting is as he goes through the arguments of how you can tell something a forgery how you can not tell it's a forgery, in the end, the conclusion de Cembrio comes to is exactly the opposite of what modern thinkers think. In other words, he proves in quotation marks that the rhetoric ad Herennium was authentic, even though we now think it's a forgery. He proves that the De Invenzione was a forgery, though we now think it's authentic. Um, nonetheless, hearing them talk about how you can tell works are forgeries is interesting. For, for example, one of the things he says is, you can sometimes tell a work is a forgery if, in manuscripts, meaning handwritten works, it's kind of tacked on at the end. right? So that gives us, again, a sense of the material text, the material culture of the text, that manuscripts were basically choirs that you would sew together right so if you slap one on at the end it might mean it wasn't there originally and there's a whole bunch of other things like that that just gives a corner a, a, a sort of a sense of the basic ways humanists might have talked about texts. so it's a fascinating work i think and and you know scholars have occasionally dipped into it here and there but it's definitely worth i would say more attention than it's gotten
1: what fascinates you know how this idea of criti- close reading or critical reading that nowadays is uh very common in in humanities was was a thing back there as well so it wasn't like there was a book written and then people just blindly followed that this idea of uh critical critically and analyzing a text was uh was there there as well yeah. and uh there is another figure you talk about angelo Polliano, uh poliziano what, what yeah. Technic- yeah. yeah what yeah. techniques did he develop and he also had a text called uh lamia so it would be great if you could talk about him as well
0: yeah, no, he's an endlessly fascinating figure um, who, who ended up dying pretty young. Um, he, he lived from 1454 to 1494. He was, um, kind of, he was an orphan who was adopted by the Medici family uh, for practical purposes. Um, and he was just a prodigy when it came to literature and Latin and Greek and so on. Uh, and so, from the years 1480 onward, he basically got a job teaching at the University of Florence. This was a university that Lorenzo de Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent de Medici, had uh, refounded in 1473 and intended to make into a, you know, a very important educational institution. And it had different branches. There was one branch at Pisa. Uh, where law was taught and other subjects, and then they had another smaller branch in Florence itself where literature was taught. That's where Poliziano was. So from 1480 until the, the end of his life, um, he taught at the university. Along the way, he did some very, very interesting things when it comes to philology. So he, he wrote uh, a text called the Miscellanies, the Miscellania, which are small chapters dedicated to what we can really recognize today as interesting textual problems. Right? What did a specific word mean in an ancient text? Um, you know, um, all of these different sorts of things. Um, he also wrote some vernacular poetry. In other words, he wrote poetry in Tuscan, uh, for which he's if he's known for anything. He's probably known the most for that. Um, and he also had this interesting career as a professor at the University of Florence. And what we see is we see him gaining in prestige over the decade uh, from 1480 to 1490 and then into the early 1490s. At the beginning, we even have contracts, which show how much he was paid and how much other professors was paid. And as the 1480s go on, you see his pay rising. And the other professors pay saying static. You see languages appended to the contract saying, oh, Angelo Quintana can teach whatever he wants and so on. So he was growing in prestige and an increasingly popular professor. And after a while, one of the things he wanted to do was um, start teaching Aristotle. And that provoked reactions among people at the university who were philosophers and who believed only they should be teaching Aristotle. And that's where this treatise, the Lamia, comes from, the treatise that you mentioned. Um, and what he had clearly heard was that there was this kind of academic backbiting that you sometimes hear in university contexts, right? So these were people who were self-designated philosophers. They said, we're the ones who teach Aristotle. Oh, what does Poliziano know about philosophy? How can he teach, how can he teach Aristotle? So Poliziano writes this treatise to Lamia, um, and in its genre, what it is, is what was called a prelectio, and what that meant was it was basically an opening oration to a university course, an oration that was usually given in, in the month of October when the academic year began. Um, and Poliziano had a history of writing unusual um, prelectiones, so unusual versions of, the, of, of this text. This was no exception. So he was teaching, he was going to teach the semester he offered this prelectio, the Lamia. He was going to teach um, Aristotle's uh, prior analytics. Um, and, um, you know, normally what, the genre of the prelectio, what it would be is you would you would basically, you know, give a sense of what the subject matter was, give a sense of what the author was, why it's useful to study and so on. Instead, in the Lamia, what Poliziano does is he fights back against these um, philosophy professors that were criticizing him for teaching philosophy. And in doing so, I think he really encapsulates some of the best thinking of the 15th century on what philosophy meant and how philology and philosophy were linked. So the word lamia is is a, a word that basically means a witch-like figure or a succubus-like figure. And basically, he has a description in there drawn from Plutarch. And he says that these lamias, he says, are um, people who when they when 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 they uh, leave the house, it's a very strange image. So so trigger warning for anybody who's worried about these things. Um, he says they when they leave the house, they they pop their eyeballs in, and when they enter the house, they pop their eyeballs out. And what he means by that is they're blind at home, meaning they can't look at themselves with honesty. But when they go out into the world, they're always observing and criticizing other people. And so what he says after he identifies the problem that there were these people who had criticized him for wanting to teach Aristotle, he says, well, look, let me tell you what it is I actually think I do, um, what my profession really is, and how I do it. And in doing so, he gives almost an alternate history of philosophy. So um, the first thing he says is, you know, look. If you don't want to, if you know, fine. If you don't want to call me a philosopher, call me something else. And what he does is he allies himself to this long, ancient philological tradition where you had ancient thinkers like Philoponus and others in late antiquity who read Aristotle and commented on Aristotle. They were both philosophers and philologists. And at one point in the text, it's a dramatic moment toward the end when Poliziano gets to a point where he says, um, All right, if you really want to know, um, this is what what he calls Grammatici, but I think we can legitimately translate as philologists. This is what philologists do. He says they basically um, read and critique every genre of text, meaning um, even as, let's say, the discipline of medicine, they'll only read medical texts, right? Or the discipline of law, they'll only read legal texts. I, the philologist, read all of them and can compare them. And so I think what he's doing there in this text is he's first suggesting that what he does, this field of philology, is almost um, omni right? It, by reading all genres of text, it almost includes all genres of text. Um, I would clearly say there's an anticipation of what happens much later in the history of universities with, um, you know, Kantian ideas about philosophy being a superintending discipline. Cluziano is always trying to set up philology as a superintending discipline. Um, but he's also making a strong case, I think, that the pursuit of human wisdom, philosophy in its original meaning, the love of wisdom, is something that's best exercised by omnivorous reading, right? By never being um, impeded by disciplinary boundaries, by always reading across disciplines and so on. So, for that reason, to me, it's one of these clear lost italian renaissance text in the sense that i think it should be up there with erasmus's praise of folly i think it's a brilliant text it's just it's just way too little known i think among people
1: uh one of the surprises in your book is and you mentioned it in your book as well it's the inclusion of rainy descartes uh yeah. an italian renaissance how, how is it relevant how was he an outgrowth of italian humanism yeah.
0: so Descartes I included for a few reasons. So, so one of the aims of the book the book, is that the first few chapters really do focus on these 15th century thinkers. And then the second half of the book is really about how do we hear echoes of what they did in later centuries, right? And, you know, Descartes dies in, in 1650. Um, and he's there for a few reasons. The first, I would say, um, the biggest reason is this. Um, if this is a book about philology, which is to say making sense of texts, how do we think about someone as foundational as Descartes in the historiography of modern philosophy who, um, you know, at the beginning of his discourse on method basically says, I'm going to jettison texts. Right? I mean, he, come, he he actually says, right, he writes the discourse in French and he says memorably, you know, he gives a history of his early life and he says, um, I, I was nourished on letters, right? J'ai été nourri aux lettres, right? He says very eloquently. And so one of the things that led me to do was think about his early education. And what's fascinating about Descartes is he was educated by Jesuits who only then, in the very late 16th century, when he was a young boy, had established this brilliant new system of what they called colleges, really schools for young, more or less, mostly young boys. And what the Jesuits did that the actual 15th century humanists never actually succeeded in doing the Jesuits were the ones, as John O'Malley, the great historian knows, always used to say, that actually succeeded in bringing humanist ideas about classical learning into the classroom successfully. So, so the one way we can think about why does Descartes belong in a book that has its origins, thinking about Italian humanism, is that educated by Jesuits as he was, he basically was the recipient of a mature version of you know, ideas originally nourished in Italian humanism, classicizing Latin. Um, Intimate knowledge of the classics, um, intimate knowledge of the Latin language, right? So that's one reason. But I think the second reason is just as interesting, which again, has to do with this fact that he claims in his philosophizing to be leaving all of that textual tradition behind. But I think if you read him carefully, you can hear echoes of it everywhere, right? He can't resist occasionally using ancient examples in his writings, even as he's trying to get away from these texts that he was raised by. And a lot of the critiques he makes of his contemporaries, because he was very, you know, he was he was very willing to have, you know, if he wrote something, he was very willing to have you critique him. And he would say, I'll answer you. He was very interested in debate. Um, it, in a lot of the critiques he makes, he sounds almost exactly like Poliziano. Right. He'll say things like, um, you, know, uh, you know, today, for example, uh, people who are philosophers are a lot like, you know, followers of Aristotle but not Aristotle himself as if to say you know Aristotle himself was this brilliant philosopher it's the followers later the people who are obsessively trying to be Aristotelians are the ones who are um you know not making the grade when it comes to philosophy and so on so I think for me there were a lot of echoes there that I heard the classicism brought on by the Jesuits but also I think inevitably and concomitantly um the you know those echoes of humanism that you'll find in the styles of argumentation,
1: and and how did the development of print culture impact philology? Yeah, you no, know, that
0: that's an interesting question, right? And I think that, um, you know, printing with movable type uh, you know, enters you know the Western world in the 1450s. It hits Italy uh, in the 1460s, is sort of supercharged by the intellectual energies of the Italian Renaissance. Um, I would say for the first 50 years or so of printing with movable type, when you actually look at the books that were printed, um, they're made to look like manuscripts, which is to say that you know they don't look like books as we would necessarily know them today, other than in their composition. Right? By the time you get to the early 16th century, the era, let's say, of Erasmus, you start to see books that look a little more familiar. You start to see books, for example, in the very earliest printed books, There might not be a title page. There might only be a colophon at the end identifying who the printer was, you know, this sort of thing. Whereas by the early 16th century, you'll start to have a title page. You usually have the printer identifying him or herself sometimes with a, you know, a beautiful illustration, a printer's device to show where they're from. Um, You have the author's name in big letters, the title of the work. So, so printing, you know, books evolve over time, I guess is the point. And The history of printing with movable type intersects in all sorts of ways with philology. Um, In the early years of printing, um, you know, sometimes it could almost worsen the condition of text because, you know, printing was a business and people had to do it quickly sometimes. So sometimes a printer might just take, you know, the one manuscript he had to hand, print it out, and then all of a sudden, if that was a bad manuscript, it had mistakes in it. Um, all of a sudden, instead of one handwritten copy, you've got hundreds of copies of it with the mistakes, right? So there's some ways, in in the sense, the trajectories of philology can change drastically because of printing with movable type. In other ways, though, over time, uh, I think you know, in obvious ways, printing enlarged the community of philology, right? Because all of a sudden, you had more copies, of more books, and you know, if if you were Sitting in Amsterdam, and I was sitting in Naples. We could be looking at the exact same thing and writing each other about it and and figuring things out. So all of a sudden, printing I think over time, you know, enlarges the community of philologists. You know what we eventually call the Republic of Letters. Right? There's people who now can correspond over similar things together. Um, in the book, one of the things I talk about too is, uh, you know, the way that printing develops eventually um, by I would say the late 17th century it becomes so um mature uh, that you could have both printed texts and images together in the same volume that are done in, in in very very mutually complementary and i would say aesthetic with quite beautiful ways to such a point that the combination of text and image together can lead one to think of the book um, as a vehicle of persuasion and as a vehicle of truth in ways that wouldn't have existed in the first, you know, century or so of printing. So that's another part of the story too: is how how do you persuade people again in this larger idea of philology? How do we how do we um, interpret texts? How do we make sense of texts when images are in the picture too? What function do they have, especially when printing matures?
1: And um, the two other fascinating figures you talk about in the book, Jean Mabion and um, Jean Hardouin, if I'm again pronouncing, excuse yeah, me, if I'm. Yeah just butchering the names oh, no <laughs> you no know, yeah and, you know, one of them created this field paleography i would it would be great if we could talk about him and also sure. the other one is sort of like sounds like today's conspiracy theorists who thought that everything is that's fake
0: a, that's <laughs> a good point yeah so these two figures uh jean mabillon and jean hardouin um they're rough contemporaries uh in in the late um the late 17th century uh they're kind of active in the wake of descartes death right and um Mabillon is a maurist benedictine um, and as such he had uh charge of a series of early medieval french documents meaning that his order his religious order was responsible for curating taking care of publishing all of these documents that pertain to the early you know early medieval france um so so mabion on the one hand he has this responsibility On the other hand, in the wake of Descartes' type of philosophizing and in the environment of broad skepticism, which was in the air then, in fact, people have even talked about that era, the the 17th century in France, as a a Peronian crisis or crise Pyrrhonienne, right, referring to Peronian skepticism. There were people who criticized Mabillon's work and his order's work, saying that a lot of those documents that they believed to be authentic, that his order believed to be authentic, were in fact forgeries. So Mabillon set out to write a text that would show exactly what it was, the kind of work he was doing, how you distinguish different phases in the history of handwriting. Um, In doing so, he really creates... The discipline, if not the name of paleography, which you mentioned before, and that that word just means basically the study of old writing. Um, And it's it's come in its modern instantiation to, to mean, you know, the history of handwriting. How, for example, did the history of Latin handwriting change over time, number one? And number two, what do you do with it? And one of the big things you do with that is... How do you authenticate something? And other words, how do you decide if something is a forgery or not? How do you date something, right? How do you, how using handwriting can you figure out if something's from the 12th century or the 8th century? Um, how do you locate something? Was it done in France? Was it done in Germany? Was it done in Italy? Um, and so those are all of the things that paleographers do. And, and I think you could argue that Mabillon, with his 1681 work, uh, which we call Undiplomatic, Stere Diplomatica, he really creates the discipline in a way. And what's interesting about it is that that notion of text and image together is what's most important because he gives this very interesting explanation of how how you can judge the progress of Latin handwriting. And he has his theories about how it worked. But at every instance, he provides illustrations and the illustrations are so beautifully done that they almost seem photographic. And remember, this is well before photography and, you know, copy machines and stuff like that, right? So they're done by engravers. They're done by artists who are essentially, you know, copying manuscripts and he's putting them in this work. It's a stunningly beautiful book. It's worth just paging through if, if you know you can find online versions of it and so on. One of his critics um who who had made this accusation about forgery, when he read this book on diplomatics, Dere Diplomatica, he wrote this beautiful letter to Mavillon, and he said, you know, at first when I read your work, I suffered something human, meaning my pride was hurt, because I was the one who had said you were doing forgeries, but instead you you proved this to me. And he says to him, um, as I read your work, though, he says, you know, the, the light of truth shone so brightly around me that I couldn't help be persuaded and I had to go share with my colleagues. So it's one of these beautiful instances where someone really admits they were wrong. So Mabillon you know, achieved his objective, right? He showed, okay, we're not doing forgeries here. I have a method, um, I'm, I'm studying and ordering and editing these old French documents in a way that's very methodical. So that's one part of this chapter that you mentioned. The second figure you mentioned was this person named Jean Hardouin, who as you say is almost a mirror image of, of Mabillon. He, he too is French. He too was a Jesuit, uh, or he was a Jesuit rather, he was educated in Jesuit schools. Um, And he came to believe, the short version is that he came to believe that basically all of ancient literature was a forgery, except for a few things. Homer was not a forgery. Um, Herodotus was not a forgery. Uh, Virgil's Georgics were not a forgery, Virgil's Aeneid was, and so on. And you can kind of see how he proceeds throughout his career. But the one thing that, that comes up most of all is, again, printing with movable type, because here's what he says. At a certain point, he said, you know, uh, you know, I think he says it was in the early 1690s that I began to scent fraud in Augustine, meaning he began to think that the works of St. Augustine, the church father, who had lived from 354 to 430 were forgeries. trees, right? And then he says, but then I began to think about everything else. And, I, and, and what, he came, what he came to think was that Almost all of ancient literature, almost all of early Christian literature, it was all made up in the Middle Ages by, um, you know, medieval theologians who wanted to give themselves a backstory for their heretical imaginings. They made up all of the ancient literature, they made up all church literature, they made up the church, but, um, a council the church councils, this is in Hardouin's reading. Um, how did Hardowen, quote, know, unquote, all of this? Well, he says... You know the way i came to know this is that you know now that printing with movable type has become so good in our era, we've now printed all the books that there are we've moved them out of the libraries meaning what you know we take we have found all the manuscripts the handwritten versions that we've now printed versions and we can now compare them with each other and now i know now i can know that these are all forgeries and what's interesting about this is he's almost a mirror image of Mabion. here Mabillon is using the technology of printing Really create an academic discipline, persuade people of the truth of that discipline, and here Hardaway is on the other side, you know, using that same printing movable type to fuel one of the wildest conspiracies in the history of literature. You know, it's almost as if today, um, you know, somebody said, well, you know, we we've all heard of this author, you know, Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. Well. You know, this was actually just Jeff Bezos and Amazon. They invented him. You know, and and you know he didn't really exist. You know, and, and all of those so-called early versions—they were just invented and so on. So, in a sense, I think Hardaway provides this interesting mirror, and it's gloomily familiar too. When you read him carefully, you realize it really does sync up with the way conspiracies happen today. Because once once he once he makes that turn, uh, in other words, once he comes to believe everything is forgery. He then uses his philological skill, because he was a very good philologist, to go back and try to prove, in quotation marks, obviously, that these authors were reporters. In fact, he was such a good philologist before he became overtaken by this conspiracy theory um, that he was the early modern editor of... Pliny's Natural History, this ancient encyclopedia, he was chosen to do this for this very prestigious series of texts, and he did such a good job that philologists, even today, think that he made some important discoveries. But again, after he makes this turn into conspiracy land, um, he he uses those skills to try to prove that everything was a forgery. To give you just one example. um, One of the genres of scholarly writing that was common in that era or line by line commentaries on ancient works. And so one of the things he does is he he writes a commentary on Virgil's Aeneid um, in which he tries to prove that Virgil's Aeneid wasn't in fact written by Virgil, the ancient Roman poet, but was actually written by a medieval Frenchman. And what he does is he finds expressions in Virgil's Latin, that he, he, he actually intuits, he says, no, these are actually originally French expressions that somebody then transposed into Latin. And so it's amazing to see what happens. You know, once you're overtaken by a conspiracy theory, just as today, right, people who are used to reading and finding things on the internet and looking around and doing research and so on can use all of those techniques to sort of fuel the conspiracy. So anyway, thanks for asking I me. Mean, those, those two cases really to me are such interesting. It's such an interesting counterposition
1: yeah and as as you just said it uh, they quite echo with what's happening nowadays on, on you know in social media or even in universities with all conspiracy yeah. theory uh which we'll get to and before we talk about modern times very briefly you could tell us about the french enlightenment because that's also an important part of your book and how people like for example diderot or uh damper uh yeah. encyclopedias were influenced by renaissance um humanism
0: yeah, I mean, they, you know, the, the, that's one of the, toward the end of the book, I talk about the French encyclopedia as a kind of summing up as a sort of ending phase of some of this and a move toward, you know, other sorts of things. And, um, you know, a number of uh, of the ideas that Italian humanists kind of, I would say, inaugurated find expression in the, encyclop- the encyclopedist, right? These people like Diderot and d'Alembert One is this very broad and capacious conception of philosophy, right? So they're they're very much in the the vein of Poliziano in the sense that, you know, whatever word you might use, philosophy shouldn't be something that is just an academic discipline. It should be a broad um, vision, right? A broad sense of wide reading and so on. You know, the search for human wisdom that is should be broad reading. So when you read entries in the encyclopedia, like their entry on, Uh, philology, philologie, it's very similar to Poliziano's, you know, sense of capaciousness that you read across disciplines and so on. Um, When you read their entry on gens de lettres, right, you know, people of letters, men of letters, right, it's very much like some of the aspirations of these Italian humanists, right, that you'd be a broad reader, you you wouldn't be imprisoned by one discipline or disciplinary tradition and so on. And then the one other thing that I would note just about the en- encyclopedia authors is they, not unlike you know, their immediate French predecessor, Jean Mabillon, were very skillful at using images to buttress the kind of textual points they were kind of trying to make. In fact, so much so that they say in more than one place that sometimes an image does a better job of explaining things than words do. Um, and so I, I found that an interesting kind of way to end the book and, and think through the you know, the ending of things.
1: Uh, we all get this sense i mean i when i read the book and as you were talking we get this sense that uh, in terms of us being overwhelmed and the thing you mentioned at the beginning overwhelmed with new information and text in different formats not that different from renaissance and just finding our way through all these texts to be able to filter out what is right what is wrong or what is fabricated it's quite important so generally speaking do you think we're, we're we do you think um there's this crisis of reading. And uh, if I may add a second question, it's that what, what do you think about state, the current state of humanities? Do you think humanities are in a state of crisis?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, in
0: terms of in the word crisis, right, it's an interesting word, right, because it, it implies an emergency, right? It implies, to an extent, danger and things like that. And so I, I don't know that I would necessarily use the word crisis. But I would say it, there it, there are serious inflection points that, um, on the one hand, I think what you'll often see in commentary on the humanities is what you might call a nothing-is-new-under-the-sun approach, meaning people will always dig up somebody from the 1920s or the 1850s or sometime in the past who said, oh, nobody likes the humanities anymore. But I actually think we're in a qualitatively different moment precisely because of the other question that you asked, which is, is this a crisis of reading? And in that sense, maybe the word crisis is more appropriate because I don't, I don't know that we were built evolutionarily to take this much information in at these speeds, you know, you know, as much as we are, let alone, right. The most recent things of, you know, artificial intelligence and chat GPT, which are, you know, are really like, I think throwing into question, right. How, how we're going to be reading and writing in the future. So, um, you know, in the book, I talk about the work of this one cognitive scientist, Marianne Wolfe. Um, and she's just a wonderful thinker, or excellent writer. And, um, you know, she's written that, you know, First of all, we probably weren't even evolved to just read regular words on a page, right? As human beings, we were evolved to, you know, run away from lions and find shelter and things like that. You know, let alone like focus on a page. Let alone, right? All of this information is coming at us, and so she has this other book that had come out relatively recently called "Reader, uh, Come Home," I think. And basically, she, you know, has studied, as have other uh, cognitive scientists, the fact that the more time people spend online, the less empathetic they become, right? So when we think about education, this is important. Um, The harder it is for them to discern things that are true, from things that are false. And so I just think, you know, what she calls for is more um, in-depth reading, right? You know, more reading of in-depth things. And I think we can expand that in the world of education to more um, in-depth research projects and things like that. So in some senses, I do think there's something like a crisis of reading now. I don't know that I or anybody else has the answers uh, for what to do about it, but I do think it's definitely worth our collective attention. It's not something I think we can just ignore.
1: A couple of months ago, just by accident, I came across this article in about media studies and this guy was emphasizing this skill, which a new skill, which he called critical ignorance uh, or yeah. critical negligence. So we have to critically neglect or ignore a series of data or information that yeah. is available to us these yeah. days. It's fascinating,
0: right? Because I think that that's exactly right. I mean, I think you know, even as if you were to look back all the way back to the Renaissance, one of the big aims is how do we preserve everything? And now I think the question is, you know, we can't preserve everything. So how do we how do we choose what not to preserve, right? How do we choose, as you say, you know, critically to be to ignore or to neglect certain things because we just can't. There's no way we can take it all in or preserve it. all.
1: Uh, before we end this conversation, is yep. there any other work you're, or project you're currently working on?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the things that pops up here and there in the book that we're discussing today is this notion that just like philology has had different meanings, so too has philosophy. And so I, what I'm what I'm working on now, and it's it's a, probably a longer project that it'll take a while to complete, is something like a new history of moral philosophy. Informed by the idea that philosophy is, is not just what we would call academic philosophy today, but also at various points in its past history has been the search for a style of life. And how was that manifested in different eras? So, so that's kind of what I'm playing around with now and, and writing about here and there.
1: Uh, Professor Christopher Slaenze, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It was absolutely fascinating talking to you and uh, learning more about Italian Renaissance and how it contributed to the origins of modern humanities. Thank you very much. It was just great to be with you, and I appreciate
0: your spending all this time with me.